0: We're in Exodus chapter 12, if you would turn with me. If you have your Bible, if not, it's going to be on the screen. Exodus 12, uh, let me just begin by saying this. I, my family and I adopted a dog 12 years ago. We named her Gracie, just a little, you know, a little black mutt that we got at the shelter. And she is the sweetest dog I've ever seen in my life. I mean, not a mean bone in her body. And I love her to death. When there's thunderstorms, I want to take her back to the shelter. Otherwise, otherwise she's a great dog, um, but she is very much a creature of habit. And may, if you're a dog person, you, maybe your dog is the same way, but she knows what happens when in our house better than anybody else does, even though she doesn't keep time, she doesn't wear a watch. For instance, every morning, every weekday morning, she rides with Carrie as she takes Will to school that's just her job. She's got to go with Will. She's got to take the little boy to school, right? You know, so, uh, so every, every morning that she sees us putting things in backpacks and up early and getting dressed, she knows, oh, I got to take Will to school. So she stands by the front door and she's ready to go. At night, she and Carrie go to bed at the same time and they go to bed together, right? So if we, we happen to be staying up later than usual for whatever reason, maybe there's a ball game on TV or a movie we're watching, Gracie will stand there and make eye contact with Carrie and just wag her tail like, okay, it's time. I don't know what you're doing here. I mean, you're not 16 anymore. Come on, we got, we got things to do in the morning. Let's go. And it's fun to watch. It's kind, of, it's kind of interesting. But aren't we the same? Don't we have habits that we maintain and little rituals we continue to keep? Uh, I'll give you a perfect example. My previous church... We renovated the sanctuary, and that meant that we were worshiping in the gym for about six weeks. And I remember the, the very first Sunday we did that. We walk in to the gym, and there's hundreds of folding metal chairs sitting on the basketball court. And I'm standing there looking at everything, and the service is about to start. This woman, longtime member of the church, comes and stands next to me and says, "Um, How do I find my pew? And I was like, oh, that's a good one. But she wasn't joking. She was like, I have to be sitting in exactly the same place that I sit normally. And I don't know how to find that. Because I can't worship if I'm not around the same people I'm usually around, if I don't have exactly the same view of you as you're preaching. I mean, how am I supposed to fall asleep if I'm not comfortable, right? So, and I talked to my friends who are pastors in other denominations. And they all said the same thing. So it's not just a Baptist thing. It's across denominations. People like sitting in the same spot every single Sunday, don't we? And it's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. If you ever tell someone, please move, you're in my pew, then you're a sinner and you need to repent, okay? And I'm, I'm smiling when I say that, but I mean it, okay? Uh, it is funny, though, the different things we do in churches, the, the different, deno- the ways denominations vary. Now, I'm not talking about doctrine. Doctrine matters. And there are some important doctrinal differences between Baptists, Catholics, Methodists, etc But I mean the way we do worship. How would you describe Baptist worship if you were trying to tell some non-Baptist what we do on Sunday mornings? You know, you don't want them to believe we handle snakes. That's what they believe, but that's not what happens. Now, you would say about 30 minutes of worship, of singing, about 30 minutes of, of preaching somewhere in there, give or take, And the the songs we sing tend to be, I don't know if you've figured this out, but they all tend to be written in one of two historical eras. So we sing songs that were written between 1850 and 1950, generally, give or take. We sing songs also, especially in this service, that were written in the last five or 10 years. And that's it. And our songs tend to be very uh, personal. They're about our personal walk with the Lord. Uh, have you been to Jesus for the saving power? Are you washed in the blood of the lamb? We sang in our first service today. Or are there songs that we sing directly to God and we're telling him how great he is? If you go to a mainline church, if you go to a a Presbyterian or Episcopalian or Lutheran or or some Methodist churches, it's much different. It's it's very liturgical. And that means there's a very definite structure to the service. They'll read a New Testament passage and an Old Testament passage that come out of their lectionary. They'll do some pre-written prayers. They'll recite a creed. They may even kneel for some parts of the service. And their sermon is maybe 10 or 15 minutes. It's just a little homily. The songs are different too. When I was growing up, Baptists used to kind of snort at that and call it high church music, but I've learned to love it. It's good stuff too. It's just different. The, the lyrics are much uh, loftier, I would say. They're, they're written in a different historical period, more 1700s than our, 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 our hymns today and our choruses. They're, they're going to be talking about how majestic God is and how holy he is and how, uh, how different he is than us. And then you go to a black church and you get a completely different experience because their, their music is very emotional and very exciting and repetitive. And it's, it's just, it just drives home the point. And their preaching, their preaching is powerful. And if you think you're getting out by noon, you got another thing coming. They don't, they don't watch the clock. They are there to worship. And they don't care if you beat the Baptists or the Methodists to, you know, Luby's or wherever you're going. And then you go to a Church of Christ the next week and you're stunned to find there's no piano or organ or any, any instruments of any kind. But man, can those people harmonize when they sing a cappella? And I'm not even gonna try to describe what happens in a Pentecostal church, in a charismatic church. And I'm not even gonna try to describe what happens in a church that worships in another language, Spanish or Mandarin or Vietnamese or, or you name it. Here's my point though. Yeah, doctrine matters. When it comes to worship rituals, none of us, that includes us Baptists, none of us can say, well, we do it the right way. Everybody else, they can do whatever they want. We're the ones who do it right. You know how I can say that so definitively? Because Jesus never told us how to worship him. Jesus basically told us two things about worship, two rituals that we are to continue doing until he returns. And aside from that, he left the rest up to us. Now, if you go through the rest of the New Testament, the book of Acts and the letters, you'll find some specific instructions. Hebrews tells us, "Don't stop gathering together." Hebrews 10:24, "Don't stop assembling together as believers." It tells us you're supposed to sing, sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to one another. You're supposed to preach the word in season, out of season, pray together, give offerings, guard against false teaching. Every book of the New Testament tells us watch out for false teaching. Also guard the unity of God's church. So fellowship is important. What we do out there in the atrium afterwards when we're visiting, mingling, what we do in life groups when we sit and we share life together, that's important. But what the Bible doesn't tell us is what kind of building to, to meet in, what kind of songs to sing, what kind of instruments are good and what, what, what kind of instruments are bad, how long the sermon should be, none of that just gives us these two instructions. Do these two things. Never stop doing them until I come back. What are those two? We'll get to them by the end of the message. But first, I want to show you a, a ritual that God gave the Israelites. See, this, this message is going to be a little different. We're going through the book of Exodus, and we're talking about these amazing miracles. And last week, we looked at the 10 plagues that fell upon Egypt in judgment for their sin against Israel and against God. And when today, we're going to look specifically as, at the 10th, when the angel of death comes And visits the land of Egypt. But we're not really going to focus on that event. We're going to focus on the ritual that that came out of that event. And you'll see why as we go along, I hope. So verse 1 of chapter 12, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months it shall be the first month of the year for you. And he goes on to tell him, a year from now, when you're remembering back to what happens tonight, you're going to get together with your families and you're going to, you're going to take the blood of a lamb. And well, first of all, he tells him tonight or, or this, this month, on the 10th of the month, every Israelite household is to go out and get a spotless lamb, a spotless male lamb, one year old. Bring it into your home, keep it there for five days. On the fifth day, the 14th day of the month, Slaughter the lamb, paint its blood with a branch of hyssop, which was a shrub that grew in that part of the world, across the doorpost of your home. And then you will be protected from the angel of death. Then your firstborn will live. The blood of the lamb will protect you. And then he says in verse 13, the blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. That's interesting, isn't it? He says this blood will be a sign for you, not for the Lord, not for the angel, for you. We'll talk about why in a moment. He says, this day, in verse 14, this day shall be for you a memorial day and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations, as a statute forever, you shall keep it in as a feast. This is what I got ahead of myself in saying a while ago. So God, in the midst of telling Moses, here's how you're gonna be safe from the angel of death, he interrupts that to say, and by the way, a year from now, you're going to celebrate this thing. You're going to look back on this night when your firstborn was spared. And once again, you're going to take a year old spotless lamb and slaughter it. You and your family are going to eat it. You're going to roast it, eat it together. You're going to also take unleavened bread, bread made without yeast. So just little flat bread. And for the next seven days, you'll eat just that flat bread. That's the only bread you'll eat. You'll, you'll scour your home and get rid of all the yeast. I want you to remember this because it's going to be something you'll do every year at this time of year. So then Moses goes to the elders of Israel. He summons them together. He's got important information for them. Remember, there were were close to 2 million Israelites and they had to get the word out. Moses couldn't hit a button on his cell phone and send out a text to all 2 million. He He had to have a network of leaders who would go and spread this word so that everybody was ready for the Passover, so that everybody had the blood of the lamb on their doorposts. Moses tells them exactly what God said to him. And then in verse 24, he says, you shall observe this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? In other words, in future years, when your kids say, dad, why do we do this thing every year with the the lamb and the unleavened bread and the bitter herbs and all that stuff? He says, you shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshiped. Now, I don't know how those elders felt at that moment, but if I would have been in their shoes, I would have been a little confused. Yes, God, thank you. You're going to spare us, but I want to get the word out about this blood that needs to be painted on the doorposts of our homes. Why are you telling me about this celebration? We're not going to start for another year. Moses, we can talk about this later, right? We got to spread the word. We got to get ready for the angel of death. But Moses is like, no, listen carefully. This is a new holiday for us and we've got to be faithful to keep it. So what we do know for sure is they were ready on the 14th. 14th shows up. And every Israelite home has the blood of the lamb on the doorpost. For once in the Bible, the people of God perfectly did the will of God. Don't you wish we could say that today? And the angel of death passes over them. And it's a night of terrible mourning, terrible grief in the land of Egypt. We talked about this in great detail last week about how you and I should have mixed feelings when we read the stories of these 10 plagues between chapters 7 and 11. These are some terrible things that happened. At the same time, we know that God is a God of justice, that God punishes evil. And the Egyptian people did terrible things to the Israelites and they deserve to be punished. We also know that it shows that God is willing to do whatever it takes to save his people. And we also know that God gave the Egyptians opportunity after opportunity to save themselves, to, re- to take hold of his grace, to f- repent of their sins. We know that some of them did, that's, that a mixed multitude of Egyptians came with the Israelites when they left and began to worship the God of Israel instead of their own gods. And although the Bible doesn't say this explicitly, I believe with all my heart that if any of those Egyptians had painted the blood of a lamb on the door of their houses, their sons would have been spared too. What we know for sure is this, in every home in Egypt, there was either a dead son or a dead lamb. There were no exceptions. In every home in Egypt, there was either a dead son or a dead lamb. And so in the middle of the night, Pharaoh summons the Israelites. His son is dead. The heir to the throne He hears the sound of grief all across the land. He summons the Israelites and says, get out of my sight. I don't want to see you again. Be gone before the sun comes up. And so in the middle of the night, they have to pack all their things. Can you imagine how long it takes to mobilize nearly 2 million people? And so for that reason, that's why they, they eat unleavened bread. Because in that moment, they didn't have time to let their bread rise before they put it in the ovens. And so for the next several weeks before Well, what we're going to talk about in a couple of weeks, the manna starts to come. They're eating that flat unleavened bread. But in the middle of this evacuation, in the middle of all this hustle and bustle, if you can imagine the chaos, God comes and appears to Moses at that moment and says, by the way, Moses, I've got some more instructions for you about the Passover. You know, a year from now, when you start to celebrate this, You're going to have some foreigners in your midst and some of them are going to be believers and circumcised and some of them aren't. And so here's how you handle that. And by the way, this is important, Moses, so make sure you communicate it. When you roast that lamb in the future, from this point on, when you slaughter and roast that lamb, make sure you don't break any of its bones. And so Moses, in the middle of that evacuation, he has to summon all those elders again and say, okay, guys, before I forget, I have to tell you exactly what the Lord told me about what we're going to do a year from now. And then they go on their way. See, we're creatures of habit. The Lord knows that. He knows that we like rituals. We like sameness. We like doing things in a certain order. And some of our rituals are meaningless. Let's face it. If you didn't sit where you sit this next Sunday, you would still be able to worship the Lord. I mean, what you sitting in the same pew is the thing that makes us comfortable because we like sameness, but it's not meaningful. There, there are rituals we have that are just silly, I'll give you an example. When Carrie and I watch U of H play on TV, we always wear red, which is just silly because they can't see us wearing red. What I wear doesn't have any impact on the outcome of the game. And yet we just feel like, you know, that's the thing to do. And then there are rituals that are important, that are meaningful, that matter. Today, when we celebrate Mother's Day, that's not something that's written in the Word of God. That's why I don't preach a Mother's Day sermon, by the way. It's not something we're commanded to do in Scripture. But it is meaningful, isn't it? Because whoever you are, you, there is a, you're alive today because there is a woman who paid the price to bring you into the world. And there is a woman who, for at least 18 years, resisted the urge to kill you. <laughs> and if you're like me, did a lot more than that. I, I, my mom was... The reason I know who Jesus is. She was the first person who told me about him and lived out before me the, the walk of a, a disciple. So it's appropriate if your mother's still alive to, to celebrate her and let her know how glad you are for what she's done for you. And if she's dead, to honor her memory. And even if you have a difficult relationship with your mom, to do what you can to honor the fact that she brought you into the world. In a couple of weeks, Carrie and I will celebrate another great ritual, a very important thing for us, and that's our wedding anniversary. On May 23rd, 1992, we got married when, as she says, we were stupid young, right? That, we were, and yet we celebrate that we, we've stayed together, that we've built something good, that this was, this was a good decision we made. And then the week after that, we'll celebrate Memorial Day. Again, another celebration, another observance that we do every year. We remember the reason we have freedom as a nation is because there were men and women willing to lay down their lives literally in defense of our country. Those are meaningful rituals. But then there's a whole another category. And those are the rituals that we do because God told us to. And for us as Christians, there are two in particular. But for the Israelites, there was one, and that was the Passover. That was their most important day. Now, God later on in the law gives them some others to observe, but this is their highest day. Why is that? I got to admit to you, if, if I were a, a Jewish leader at that time, if I'd been Moses and God hadn't given me any instruction and I was thinking, okay, what should be our biggest celebration of the year? I wouldn't have chosen Passover. Uh, there are at least three other days I would have chosen instead. For instance, I might have chosen the day the, the Red Sea was parted. We'll talk about this next week. It's a great story. And that's the day when as an Israelite, I got to see my enemies destroyed before me. I knew from that point on, I had nothing to fear for the Egyptians because I saw them dead on the seashore. Or or why not not, uh, the giving of the law at Mount Sinai? We'll see this in a couple of weeks. The Israelites will make it to Mount Sinai, the mountain where Moses first met God in the burning bush. And he'll walk up that mountain and spend 40 days and nights up there and come back down with these tablets inscribed with the law of God. The law of God set the Israelites apart from all other people. God made a covenant with the nation of Israel that means Israel's different from any other country. Not, you know, America doesn't have a covenant with God. Modern day Israel doesn't have a covenant with God, but Old Testament Israel did. That set them apart. That gave them a different lifestyle than all other countries, all other peoples. And yet that wasn't the one God told them to observe. Or why not the birth of Isaac? Remember in Genesis when 100-year-old Abraham and 90-year-old Sarah give birth to this miracle baby? And they're like, this is the craziest thing I've ever heard. This is hilarious. Let's call him laughter. That's what Isaac means. This this was the beginning of a new race. Why not celebrate that? Why not say Isaac's birthday was when our race was founded, and yet that's not the one that was chosen. Why Passover? I'll tell you why. Because God wanted them to never, ever forget who saved them and how. He never wanted them to forget who saved them and how they were saved. And that's the same thing he wants us to remember every single day and every time we gather together in his name. See, it wasn't about their Jewish blood. That's not why they were saved. God didn't love the Jews more than any other group of people. It wasn't about their righteousness and their ability to follow the law that he gave at Mount Sinai. It wasn't about the fact that he hated their enemies like we thought he did it at at the Red Sea. And by the way, that's why in verse 13 it says that the blood on the doorpost is a sign for you, Israel, not for me, God, or for the angel of death. Because the angel of death doesn't need a sign. The angel of death has the mind of God, knows where to go. God doesn't need a sign. We do. The Israelites, when they painted that blood on those doorposts, knew I'm only going to be saved by the blood of something innocent. I'm only going to be saved because something died in my place. And that's, that was true every year after that. Can you imagine being a little Israelite boy or girl? And every year in March or April, your dad would go out into the flock. Or if y'all didn't have sheep, he'd have to go and buy one from a shepherd. And he'd get, he'd get a spotless male lamb and he'd bring it into your house. And for five days, you and your brothers and sisters would play with this lamb. This lamb was in your home with you. And on that fifth day, your dad would take a long knife and take that lamb outside and he would slaughter it and y'all would eat it together as a family with bitter herbs and unleavened bread and cups of wine. And I know it was different to grow up in Israel thousands of years ago. I mean, kids today are soft. They would have gotten attached to the lamb. I know that probably didn't happen back then, but still, but still, I guarantee you every year, it was a powerful object lesson to see. The only reason we still exist as a people is because something innocent died in our place. Every year it was a reminder. The only reason my forefathers left Egypt alive is because something innocent died in their place. And that's why the Passover was an every year thing. That's why God insisted upon it. And you would think that if you grew up knowing that, it would make you humble. There's no reason for arrogance when you didn't save yourself. It would make you aware of your dependence upon God. It would make you eager to obey him and to give him thanks for saving you by his grace. And it would make you compassionate towards other people, people who didn't know your God, because you would know, I didn't deserve this. God saved me in spite of myself and he can save you. And yet what happened to the Israelites over the course of hundreds of years? We read in the Old Testament, there were long stretches when they never even celebrated Passover. And by the time Jesus comes along, what did he find? His people, the Jews, were very racially proud, as if the blood of of Isaac had made them worthy and righteous. They looked down on people who weren't Jews. They thought they were the chosen ones meant that God loved them more than others, when all it really meant was we're a kingdom of priests. We're designated by God to be the ones who communicate his word to the world. Because God loves the whole world. They were self-righteous. They thought the fact that they had the law and those non-Jews, those Gentiles, those uncircumcised dogs, as they called them, they were filthy and, and worthless in the sight of God. But we have the law and so we're righteous. They looked for God like in the days of the Red Sea to come and sweep their enemies away and destroy them forever. And God had different ideas. Into the world comes this man named Jesus who is God in human flesh. And even his worst enemies couldn't deny it because here he is walking on water and raising the dead and giving sight to the blind and, and, and making food come out of nowhere and stilling the storm. He was obviously from God and yet he said things that just didn't make sense to them, that didn't agree with the way they typically wanted to think. He would say, how, how can you be so proud of being children of Abraham when God can snap his fingers and that rock over there will turn into a child of Abraham? Nothing special about you just because you're descended from a certain person, just because you're of a certain race, that doesn't make you any better than someone else. He he said, You need to love your enemies and pray for those who hate you. Well, that wasn't the way they thought at all. When that Roman soldier comes up to you and says, Hey, carry this burden for, for me for a mile, you carry it for two miles just to show him, I love you, I don't hate you. Pray for those who hate you, treat them with kindness, pour burning coals on their heads by treating them with kindness and love. He said, your law doesn't make you righteous. You don't even obey it. And your religious leaders, the ones you look up to as the paragons of virtue, they're hypocrites. They're whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, but full of deadness on the inside. He sat down with Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel, and said, you know, your problem is you need to be born again. All your your attentiveness to the law, all your studies, all your outward righteousness is not enough. You need to become a new person by the grace of God. And that's why the first ritual that Jesus established and said never stop doing this is baptism. And and here is one place where I'm going to argue that we do do things right. Baptism is given to us by the Lord himself, commanded by him, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and the word baptizo in Greek literally means to immerse. Now hear me, I'm not trying to throw rocks at our brothers and sisters that practice infant baptism by sprinkling. They're our brothers and sisters. We're gonna, we're gonna have fun talking to them in heaven. I'm just saying it is a beautiful thing to dedicate a child, for two parents to stand before their clergyman and dedicate their child to the Lord. I think that's a beautiful thing that happens in those churches and God honors it. I just don't believe that's, the reason God gave us baptism. Baptism instead was given to be a sign of a changed heart, which is why immersion is so important. As Romans 6 says, when you baptize someone, that's that person testifying before the whole world, before all these witnesses, the old me is dead, buried with Christ in baptism, now raised to walk in newness of life. It's a symbol of new birth. And that doesn't make sense if it's just sprinkled on a forehead. It only makes sense if it's dipped under water. Again, that doesn't mean that people who aren't baptized by immersion aren't saved. In the same way, if I didn't wear this ring, would I still be married? Absolutely. This ring doesn't make me married, but I want people to know I'm married. That's why I wear it. And if God has changed your life, why wouldn't you want people to know that? Why wouldn't you want to to do this incredibly meaningful and significant thing where you say, Christ has changed me forever, and I, I want to shout it to the rooftops? Next week, we're going to be privileged to baptize three people in this service. And if you haven't been baptized by immersion as a believer in Jesus Christ, I'd like you to, to invite you to give us a call this week or tell me today that I want to be part of that. We, we'll be glad to add you to, uh, to our list. And you can be baptized here to do, to, next week as well. So let's talk about that second ritual Jesus established. See, one night... Jesus and the disciples celebrated Passover together in Jerusalem. They'd done this every year, their whole lives, but this year was different. Jesus went off script. He took the unleavened bread and he broke it and he said, this bread is my body. Think about it. The fact that God became flesh is a miracle, unforeseen. Jesus said, my flesh was created to be broken for you. He took the cup, the cup of wine and said, "'This this wine is my blood, my blood that will be shed for you, "'blood of a new covenant. "'There will be a new way for you to come to know God. "'No longer will you have to go to Mount Sinai "'and obey every one of the laws "'because I've obeyed the laws for you. "'No longer will you have to do your best "'and hope that it's enough. "'No, you'll know because the Holy Spirit will be in you. "'You'll be forgiven from head to toe. "'You'll be mine and you can boldly approach "'the throne of grace.'" As another preacher better than I has said, the only person who can walk into the king's bedroom and ask for a glass of water at two in the morning is a child of the king. And you and I are children of the king because of the blood of Jesus. And that became our second ritual. But they didn't know that at the time. You see, a few hours later, everything Jesus said took place. Middle of the afternoon that next day, they stood watching him slowly die. And about three o'clock, A Roman soldier took a piece of wood or iron, walked up to the man being crucified next to Jesus and broke his legs to hasten his death. They wanted him dead before the sun went down. They went to the man to Jesus' right. They did the same thing. Cracked both legs so that he would die quickly. Then they came to Jesus and found he was already dead. And they left his bones unbroken. But three days later, he was alive again. And the disciples began to rethink everything. Slowly they began to put the pieces together of all the things they'd been taught began to fit together in a way they'd never seen them before. You can picture them sitting in a room saying, hey, remember the night before he was arrested when he said greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends? That's what he was doing for us at the cross, wasn't he? And another one you, you can imagine saying, yeah, but do you remember how he talked about the wine and the bread have a new meaning, but he didn't even mention the lamb? Why was that? Well, I guess it's because... He was the lamb. Jesus was the lamb. Remember what John the Baptist said in John 1.19? Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And they began to understand it this way. As Paul would write in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Christ is our Passover lamb. Peter in 1 Peter 1, 19 said, we were ransomed from our sins with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And I imagine them figuring this out together, sitting there and Peter saying to Simon and, or to Andrew and and to, uh, to James and John and the others, hey, do you guys remember Jesus ever sinning? I mean, do you ever remember him? Getting angry and saying anything he shouldn't, or lying, or I mean, anything? Nope. Bartholomew's like, Not me. Thomas is like, Nope, not me either. Could it be? Is that why he was the Lamb of God? Because he was spotless? Because he was perfect? I guess so. Otherwise, he would have been dying for his sins, not ours. You see the pieces start to fit together, the wheels turning as they're understanding truths that have been plan since the beginning of time. And then somebody says, Hey, wait a second. That's why he died before the soldier could break his legs. Now I get it. His, none of his bones were broken. He was the Passover lamb. And finally it began to dawn on them through the power of the Holy spirit. All those prophecies they'd heard before began to make sense. And they understood Jesus was not a failed revolutionary. He wasn't a victim of oppression. He was a triumphant savior. He wasn't somebody who came to be a miracle worker or a prophet or an example. He came to die for our sins, to die in our place. He was the Lamb of God who took away our sin once and for all. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me, as we just sang. And that's why that second ritual that Jesus commanded us to perform and never forget is the Lord's Supper, which we're about to take today. Hope you grabbed one of these on your way in. Because when we eat the bread and we drink the cup, we're reminded that we're saved only because Jesus died for us. See, Jesus knew that our hearts are prone to wander and we can start to turn to other things and think well i'm really great because i've achieved a lot in school or or i've achieved a lot in the workplace or because i'm exceptionally physically attractive or or athletic or because i'm very very intelligent or i'm good with numbers i've accumulated a lot of wealth those are the things that make me significant and jesus is like no all that things all those things are going to go away but my death for you will last forever and others of us would become strong Christians and over time we'd become proud because that's what religion does to you when it's divorced from the gospel. You become arrogant, you become self-centered, you become uh, just like the, the Israelites were in Jesus's time, proud of yourself. But when you come back to the cross, when you come back to the bread and the cup and you remember, I am saved only because someone innocent died for me. Someone who did not deserve to die died in place of someone who did deserve to die. What reason do I have ever to be arrogant? How dare I ever act proud? How dare I ever look down on someone else for their sinfulness when I know there but for the grace of God go I and there but for the grace of God have I gone at times but have been redeemed and rescued only by his blood, only by his sacrifice for us. And people who live in that dimension where, you're const- where you never leave the cross, where you're constantly aware of the bread and the cup. People like that have a humility and a joy and a sense of reality that gives them a significance to life that no amount of money or pride or accomplishment can bring. And there's a winsomeness to them, an attractiveness that draws people to the cross, that draws people to salvation. And that's what the Lord wants us to have. And so even though we don't do this every Sunday, every time we gather, you and I need to walk out of here knowing who saved us and how we were saved. We were saved only by the grace of God. And we're saved only because he was willing to die for us.